Joining me today is one of Australia's most iconic sports commentators, arguably the voice of Australian cycling, Mike Tomolaris. Thanks for giving up your time for a chat today. Matthew, an absolute pleasure. No, the pleasure is all mine. And um, Mike, before we, before we dive into the history books and, and go back to where it all started, you've just finished within the last two weeks commentating your 25th Tour de France. Having had some time to, to sit back and digest, what was the experience like calling the Tour this year and how does it compare to, to some of the years gone by? It certainly was different. I mean, we were in a studio at SBS headquarters in Sydney. Um, coronavirus has stopped us for the first time from travelling abroad, travelling to France, covering the Tour on the road, which has been the case for me since 1996. Uh, but I've got to say, being in the studio in my home country, in my home city, uh, made it a lot easier. When you're on the road covering uh, an incredible marathon like the Tour de France is, you're lucky if you get six hours sleep. When you take into account the fact that you've got to travel uh, from point A to point B, you're following the tour, you've uh, got to find uh, somewhere to sleep every night. And when you do find your accommodation, you get very little sleep. Uh, our days are long. They're probably up to the 24 hours in every day 18 hours we're moving or making television. So the days are long, but having uh, been affected by the COVID pandemic, um, my days have been a lot shorter. No travel, no dodging of uh, crowds or security or police, um, as is normally the case when we're traveling, uh, covering the tour. So the hardest part for me, I think, was finishing up at two and three o'clock in the morning. Um, and then trying to find some sleep because our days over there, of course, are normal. But because of the time difference, uh, they're not normal here. But what I found interesting, I think, this year as a result of working from uh, home was the fact that uh, we had all the facilities at our fingertips. And what I mean by that is auto cue, cameras. Um, we, had a, we had built a studio from the ground up. And I'm sure you'll agree, and our viewers certainly agree, that... Uh, the studio added something a little bit special. Um, um, but I've got to say, not being on location for the first time, where we gained in technological expertise through the studio element, we lacked, uh, I think, energy. And what I mean by that is, when you're over there, you can translate the energy that the tour evokes. Um, it is an incredible event because, because of its energy, um, the atmosphere, the, the, the people, thousands, tens of hundreds of thousands of people. And that doesn't quite come across when you're stuck in the studio at two o'clock in the morning in an empty studio, apart from maybe two or three others. So that's the ups and downs of uh, being at home. It may have felt that way in the broadcasting studio, but as a fan, there was no drop in energy. I, I felt that probably the best thing about this broadcast was that as commentators, you were consuming it from the exact same angle as us as fans. And I think that that made it more personable. And I felt that there was really good insight into areas where we as fans were watching something. And it might've just been a little detail off to the side of the road that, that someone would pick up on. And your eyes immediately go across and you go, oh yeah. Whereas in the past, there's so much else going on. We probably don't get the chance to pick up on stuff like that. So yeah, hats off, because it was a very, very good broadcast. 
Well, we've got a very good team. Uh, Robbie McEwen, of course, is a, a Tour de France legend, a, a three-time green jersey competition winner, 12 stages. Matthew Keenan has been commentating internationally and domestically here in Australia for many, many years. And he's just a walking encyclopedia when it comes to world cycling. And um, I had uh, people like David McKenzie um, as well, who's normally my co-host, uh, but this year, as a result of uh, COVID, uh, being a Melbourne resident, and that's another thing, uh, we were forced to um, make some, um, well, overcome some hurdles. Uh, for example, the commentary, uh, Matthew and Bridie O'Donnell, who we introduced for the first time as a commentator, and it was great to have a female commentator uh, doing, uh, covering the, uh, the blokes for the first time. That was terrific. Uh, but what I'm saying is, Kino and uh, Bridie were, were in Melbourne, in the hub there, as a result of COVID, and and, and, and Robbie uh, was in Sydney and, and, and uh, the three met audio-wise, commentary-wise, as one uh, uh, because of the technology we had at, at our disposal. And the same applied to Dave McKenzie. He was stuck in Melbourne. And I say stuck because of COVID. And, and I mean, all, all of them was, were, were supposed to join me in the studio uh, in Sydney, but that wasn't the case. They couldn't get out of Victoria. So we had a few hurdles. We overcame those hurdles. And I think, uh, judging by the feedback from management and the feedback from viewers, it was an overwhelming success. It absolutely was. And just on Bridie O'Donnell, to come in for her first Tour de France, that was extraordinary. I, I thought she added a, a, an element that has probably been missing in the past. And I really thought that that dynamic, um, it translated to the best overall commentary that I can remember. Uh, Bridie is very articulate. She's very intelligent. She's a former pro cyclist herself, a national champion of Australia in the time trial. She's an advocate for uh, women's cycling. She's a doctor of medicine as well. Look, she's, she's been there and done it all. So to have her on board, uh, even though she's never actually uh, been on location at the Tour de France, she has raced in Europe. So she knows the dynamic of, uh, of, of a road race. Just because she's a female means nothing. No, she's been inside the peloton. And we're so proud to have extended uh, our invitation to Bridie to call the men for the biggest race of them all. And let's hope that sort of trend and... Um, and uh, tradition continues for other sports and other commercial networks, for example. Absolutely. Now, Mike, let's go back to the start. Um, your broadcasting career in cycling began in 1996. And as I mentioned, you've covered 25 years since. However, your career didn't exactly start off in broadcasting or in cycling for that matter. In fact, it started in the dispensary ward at the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital. Now, having covered the most prestigious cycling races in the world. Did you ever imagine you would be in this position? Look, I always had a dream of being involved in broadcasting of one description or another. Uh, when I was young, I used to uh, share a bedroom with my younger brother and sister. And I can remember at the age of uh, six, seven or eight years of age, I would wake up at six in the morning and very quietly, so uh, not to wake up my siblings, uh, put a transistor radio to my ear, keep the volume down low. And at 6 a.m., just listen to the announcers, listen to the broadcasters and, and pretend, that, um, pretend that I was doing what they were doing in bed before I was due to wake up probably an hour later. And I knew back then that I wanted to be involved. I wanted to be at least uh, in radio in the first instance. Um, and as I say, I knew from a very young age that I wanted to be in media. As it turned out, I did do a little bit of radio. I did do some newspapers as well. 
but uh, realized my ultimate dream, and that was to work in television. And I've realized another dream, that is to work at SBS, a network that I believe gives people like myself opportunities um, to expand. And I've done that. I mean, I started off as a reporter. Uh, I've done commentary. I've done hostings. I've done producing in terms of programs. So I feel unlike uh, other networks, commercial networks in particular, where you can be pigeonholed, SBS and the ABC for that matter, allows you to spread your wings and learn your craft uh, in various ways. And that's what SBS has provided for me. In those early days where you were, where you were covering the tour for the first time and in the, in the years that followed, you were probably one of the first Australian broadcasting identities to be involved in pro cycling. What was that experience like where there wasn't the mainstream exposure and consumption of cycling that we see today? It was very tough, Matthew. It was horribly tough to tell you the truth. Um, and, and look, I've got to give credit to uh, Rupert Guinness, first of all. And for those who may not know who Rupert is, he's a uh, print journalist, cycling journalist, who actually made his debut at the Tour de France well before me, nine years before me, uh, and working for the, uh, the, the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age as well, the Fairfax newspaper. So he lived in France for 10 years. But look, as far as we're concerned, I'm concerned, sure, it was tough because... Uh, when I made my debut at the Tour de France, covering it for SBS, the race was basically just a national race of France. It was growing as a result of the television coverage, universal television coverage, global television coverage. But what I mean by it was essentially a French race was very few non-Europeans had conquered Le Tour up until the time I had been there. Sure, there was a small smattering of... Uh, of Australians, Americans and English, other writers from English speaking countries, South Africa, New Zealand, but very few had really conquered in terms of winning stages. Although Phil Anderson in the early eighties was the first non-European to wear the yellow jersey. But up until 1996, uh, if you were an Australian, you were making yourself, it was an achievement to be selected for any team, let alone win a stage. So when I made my debut, three Australians were there, Scott Sunderland, Patrick Yonker, and Neil Stevens. And for them, it was uh, one great achievement just to be selected in each of the teams that they were representing. And then when um, the following year, Stuart O'Grady and Hank Vogels arrived, well, Stewie uh, got himself the yellow jersey uh, in 98, in his second year. Uh, uh, so look, what I'm trying to say here is the event grew as a result of non-European and English-speaking riders from various countries who were filtering into the system, making their appearances in great numbers at the Tour de France. And what was essentially a French event had suddenly become global through television and through those non-French um, and European-speaking riders that had dominated for up to 100 years prior. Yeah, absolutely. And you brought up names like Stuart O'Grady, who was one of my earliest memories of cycling, just being an absolute workhorse that he was. Um, in the modern peloton, though, do you have a rider that stands out to you during commentary as a favourite to call? As a fan, I guess, the first one that comes to my mind, I'm a big Julian Alaphilippe fanboy. I really love the way he goes about cycling. But 
if I had to, if I had to choose someone besides him, it would probably be Thomas DeGent, someone who's prepared to really take the race on. Is there someone who stands out to you as, as a, as a favourite? So are you talking about the current crop of riders, Matthew, or uh, since my uh, debut in 1996? Or both? Oh, I, I was, I was, um, I was, was speaking about the modern peloton. But if we can, if okay. if you want to choose one from the modern and then one overall, let's go for that. All right. Well, I think you're right. Julian Philippe uh, has. He's a pirate. He is. Uh, he's a cavalier. He is one that entertains and. Um, and shows raw emotion. And we saw that at the World Championship on Sunday and also during the tour, not so much this year, but last year when he wore the yellow jersey on 14 separate occasions. Uh, I love him. I love him because he's one of us. He cries when he wins. He cries when he crashes. Um, And he's not a robot, uh, which is great to see. And Peter Sagan is another one. He doesn't necessarily cry, but uh, he entertains. And that's what this sport needs. Uh, this sport has gone through the doldrums. It's gone through its black era. And I think as, if we want to get out of that uh, psyche of uh, it being a drug-infused sport, then uh, people like Sagan and Ala Philip uh, will br- draw crowds to the sport. And they're doing a great job. So they're my two favourites at, at the moment. Thomas Vokler was another one, although many riders within the peloton uh, didn't like his style. But uh, he played up to the cameras. And, Look, when you play up to the cameras, you draw viewers from all over the world. And Thomas Vogler was a writer who, who uh, brought in women to the sport as viewers, as well as uh, males as well. So, look, it can't be a bad thing if you've got personality, charisma, and you entertain. In terms of uh, writers from uh, the past, well, the name I'm about to throw up may not go down too well with many viewers here. But, look, I've got to say, Lance Armstrong, for me, was one man who changed the face of cycling. And what I mean by that is, he was the one that has put so many of us on saddles from countries like Australia, the United States and other English speaking nations. I believe that Lance was solely responsible for putting me on a bike. I never used to ride a bicycle. I mean, my background is playing soccer. I played from the age of six to 42 and I loved it. But uh, Lance, because of his domination, because uh, he spoke my language, um, got me on a bicycle and you can I think the same can apply to thousands of other Australians who are particularly mammals like me who are in our 50s uh, uh, we ride we did take up cycling because of Lance and look I don't have much time for Lance these days because of uh, what's happened in terms of his uh, cheating and his bullying and his lying but I trusted him back in the day before I knew that he was a doper. I, I, I loved him. I trusted him. He, he was a champion. He won races. He wore yellow jerseys. He was a fighter. And we know now that he fought to the end because uh, he was enhanced by performance enhancing uh, products. Uh, but at the time, he was my hero. Not so much now. I think he's uh, an angry young ant. Uh, not so much young these days, but he's a bit of an angry ant. And uh, he's still aggro about the fact that he's been, um, he's been uh, banned for life. Get over it, Lance. You cheated. You lied. You bullied. I loved you once upon a time. I don't anymore. You couldn't have said it better because cycling as a sport does have a lot to owe him in terms of the, the people that he, he got into the sport. I mean, one of my earliest memories was, was Lance making a detour through the hayfield um, in the early 2000s during one of the stages. But then obviously everything that's, that's happened since um, he, he's done a lot of damage. And speaking of that damage, 
it wasn't until I went back and I read books like The Secret Race and, and Wheelman that really explained to me the systematic nature of doping that plagued that cycling era. Um, while I'm of the belief that the modern Peloton is clean, unfortunately, the reputation from that era still plagues the sport because after every Grand Tour win or, or classic win, there's conjecture about whether or not the performance was legal. Do you think cycling will get to a point where that reputation can be overcome and fans discuss winners on their merit? Or do you think it's, it's bound to stick around? Probably not, uh, Matthew. It'll probably stick around for as long as there is professional cycling. And it's unfair because uh, there are many other sports, professional sports, uh, that I believe uh, their their athletes uh, are being enhanced by performance uh, products. Be, but the difference between cycling and many other sports is that cycling has done a great job in trying to be a, as transparent as possible. They'll expose their their cheaters. And look, I don't believe that's the case with many other sports. And I'll name a few: tennis, uh, basketball, uh, American football, and even uh, professional football, uh, soccer. Uh, look, that's just a handful that I can think of off the top of my head. You can't tell me that a lot of these guys are not using performance-enhancing products, but their uh, governing bodies choose to uh, sweep uh, any of these doping issues under the carpet. Cycling hasn't done that. And look, if you ask me, do I believe that uh, there are still dopers in, in world cycling? Uh, I'll answer that by saying probably. But uh, when the big races come around, I'd like to think that most of them, not all of them, most of them are clean, or at least have, uh, their system, uh, have had their system cleansed. Um, and look, the reason being, the doping systems that are in place now, uh, I believe, have caught up with those dopers uh, that are taking drugs. Um, so there's a fine line between taking drugs and being caught now. You, you can't get away with it as clearly as you might have, say, uh, 10 or 15 years ago. And I believe of the riders in the professional peloton who might be taking doping products, they're not necessarily the ones who are winning or climbing onto podiums. I believe they're the ones who are trying to catch up at the back of the peloton the ones who will never win a stage, the ones who are purely happy just to sign a contract so they can put food on the table in front of their families each and every day. They're virtual unknowns. Um, and they're probably the ones who are inclined to, to uh, resort to taking PEDs or performance enhancing products uh, because they'll never be caught, or so they think. Mike, in 2011, your contributions to the coverage of cycling were recognised when you won the Australian Sports Commission Media Award for Best Coverage of Sport by an Individual. I know you're not in this for the individual accolades, but what did that award mean after all those years of hard work you'd put in to cement uh, cycling culture at, in Australia? Yes, Matthew. Look, uh, it's not just me that put in the hard work. It's the entire network. And I've got to say, Cadell Evans helped me big time in... Uh, receiving that award because it happened in the year of Cadell's victory in 2011. But I've got to say, this network, SBS, has been right behind the Tour de France. Uh, from every um, MD that's walked through the corridors since the early days in the mid-1990s to 2020, each and every one of them has believed in the Tour. And the event just runs through the veins of every employee not just those that work on the coverage, and there's quite a few uh, that work on the coverage, up to about 30, but 
everybody in this network, and then we have several hundred people working here on the payroll, each and every one of them believes in the tour. And that, um, that belief, I think, is, uh, has expanded to, uh, to a majority of the viewers. Um, so it's not just me, it's, it's a team behind, I'm the face. I fell in love with the tour a long time ago and people subsequently have fallen in love with the tour as a result of me falling in love with the tour in the first place. And that has, um, that has snowballed to all of the viewers that are watching each and every, every year. Our numbers this year for 2020 were incredibly high. Uh, people watch it for different reasons. They watch it for the history, the culture, the cuisine, uh, the wonderful camera shots. And lastly, but, but, Probably, definitely, it's because of the pushing of pedals. There are many layers to the tour. So there are many reasons why people watch it. It's unique. It's not played on a basketball court or on one location like a football game or a, or, or a game of golf or tennis. It's, uh, it takes in uh, so much more. And that's what the reason why people uh, love the tour. And that's the reason why it's become a success on SBS. Uh, I fell in love with it a long time ago. Everybody else has fallen in love with it ever since. Absolutely. And that, and that passion and that love definitely shines through to us as viewers. Um, now, Michael, I want to move on to the main topic of discussion today, and that is the topic of mental health. You've been a very public supporter of mental health foundations like the, the Black Dog Institute. Is that support and involvement from a social level, just getting the, getting the support and reducing the stigma? Or have you had some personal experiences or perhaps been impacted by mental health on an individual level? I haven't personally been impacted by mental health, but I have lost a lot of friends in my time uh, through suicide as a result of mental issues. I remember 25 years ago, I was working with an editor that uh, I would cut a story with for our daily sports program in the 90s, uh, World Sport. One day uh, I would go to my friend, uh, Terry, and uh, I'd ask him, can you cut my story, please, Tez? Uh, it's for tonight's uh, program, no problem. He was a very quiet fellow, didn't say much. But he liked me and I liked him. I'd never um, socialised with him. But one day he was there, the next day he was gone. I thought it was odd. And I discovered that he committed suicide. There was no warning. There was nothing. And this is 1995 or something like that, 25 years ago. I lost a very good friend, an elite athlete, uh, uh, an Olympian in the last uh, three years, uh, Stephen Wooldridge, uh, a world champion in the team's pursuit on the track. Another fellow, uh, incidentally, he went to the same school as me, uh, but I was there a lot, a lot, a lot uh, earlier before, uh, before he did. But he took his life uh, three years ago um, without any warning. Uh, had a lovely family, lovely partner, great kids, and all of, one day he woke up and decided to take his life, uh, which puzzled us all because uh, whenever I saw Stephen, uh, he would reach out to me and extend his arm and shake my hand and me vice versa and uh, having been a world champion an olympian and enjoyed so much success on the track uh, he retired i think maybe six years ago and uh, perhaps he was struggling finding work and perhaps um, looking for a life after after sport after his world championship and olympic successes um, i don't know but uh, that's why i got involved with uh, the black dog institute and mental health uh, and I have been involved with uh, BDI, Black Dog, for a few years now. I'm involved with an event called the Tour Cross Oz. Uh, in 2015, we rode from Adelaide to Darwin. 
uh, uh, raising funds for mental health, Black Dog Institute. And in 2017, I rode my bike from Perth to Broome in Western Australia and Adam Goods joined us on that ride as well. So um, yeah, I've been involved and happy to be so. And uh, mental health is a big problem. There was a time when no, nobody spoke out. And I think it's time, the times are changing and I think it's time that more men particularly uh, speak of their issues, speak of their demons. And there are demons inside their heads, I'm sure. Uh, they're too afraid to talk, but I think the culture is changing. Absolutely. And, and I, I really hope it continues to change and moves away from that hyper-masculine focus into a society that's more accepting of, of men speaking out. Um, perhaps one of the most confronting statistics I came across during not only my, my own sort of struggles, but then in the events afterwards where I was doing the work with the Black Dog Institute. Um, and it was that one in five Australians will experience symptoms of mental illness in any given year, which equates to around 5 million people. And 60% of those people won't actually go out and seek help, which unfortunately correlates to those alarming rates of suicide that we see. Why do you think it is that so many people are still continuing to choose to internalize their struggles and not speaking out. I really don't know the answer to that question, Matthew. I wish I could answer that question, but maybe it's uh, ego. They don't want to uh, show uh, signs of vulnerability. Um, you know, us Aussies uh, traditionally are seen as, Aussie men are seen as uh, macho men. Um, but look, I've cried in the past. Uh, I've, uh, I've shared tears and uh, publicly as well. There's nothing wrong with crying. There's nothing wrong with, with sharing uh, any problems that you might have mentally. Um, do it. Uh, tell your friends if you are struggling. But in, I really don't know. I just think it's an ego thing that Aussies uh, are, have, have been ingrained with uh, for many, well, probably hundreds of years. And uh, I think it's time we change. Absolutely. It's definitely, definitely time that we change. Um, Mike, in the past, you've been on record saying that you really believe cycling does a hell of a lot in terms of making us feel better physically, socially, but most importantly, mentally. Um, what do you think it is about cycling that, that seemingly inspires people to open up, provides a safe space, um, and just gives that, that forum to talk where people might not have felt comfortable to do so in the past? I'm a recreational rider and I've been on my bike for 15 years. In fact, I... I rode my bike this morning, uh, as I, I like to do, whether it's the weekend or during the week. Mind you, I did have a, me a mechanical. I, I broke the spoke, so I had to uh, uh, return home with my tail between my legs and jump on a train with my Lycra on, which uh, is a walk of shame, let me tell you. But anyway, um, despite that, I find that uh, cycling, and I'm no uh, gun, I'm no uh, speedster, I'm no uh, champion, but I like to get out each and every day if possible. Uh, I like to have the sun on my shoulders, the wind in what hair I've got left, and it's the freedom that cycling gives you. It's the freedom. And if I've got some stress issues uh, through family or through work or whatever, then those stresses are released because cycling uh, allows me to focus on, on my health, on my fitness, uh, on my uh, riding on the road, which uh, cannot, is not safe at the best of times. So those stresses that might be upstairs in, in the head uh, are released for at least two or three hours. So that's what cycling does. It's freedom. It's stress-free. It's fitness. And it's uh, the sun's rays on your shoulders as well. I'm a keen cyclist myself, and you hit the nail on the head. There are sometimes 
I ride with a, a friend of mine called Age Feeling, and there's sometimes where we might just be riding for, for 30, 40 minutes before we realise that we haven't actually spoken a word to each other. We've just been <laughs> we've just been riding alongside each other, and then there are other times where we just we can't shut the other person up. So I, I just think there's there's something about it about being out yeah. on the road and. Yeah, it's it's it sort of just opens up a can of worms sometimes. It's wonderful, awesome. isn't it? And not forgetting the uh, social aspect, uh, talking to your best mates, uh, male or female, uh, talking talking to them about anything, politics, uh, the world at large, perhaps some family issues that you might have. You can talk to them, and we're all equal under that helmet, behind those sunglasses, uh, beneath that lycra. We are all equal. We're, one one of us might be uh, professionals earning millions of dollars a year others might be earning uh, much less much 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 less uh, but we're all equal and we're like and we jump on our machines absolutely couldn't have said it better um now as i mentioned previously you've covered cycling for 25 years starting in 1996 using that period of time as a point of reference how much do you think the perception and stigma surrounding mental health has changed um and looking back, are you surprised at how much it's changed or, or how little it's changed? I'm not sure if there was a stigma before. I just don't think people used to, uh, would, were happy to talk about it. Uh, has it changed? Um, well, as I said before, I think it has changed because more people are speaking out. Uh, and we, I, I believe that we are saving lives as a result of more people speaking out. Lifeline, uh, one institution uh, has done a great job. And whenever there is a um, sadly a death uh, or uh, people who have taken their lives uh, the lifeline number is, is given out through the media um, but through cycling I think it's uh, it extends beyond cycling it's it's a world thing it's a, a general public thing uh, I just think more people are aware that uh, it's don't be afraid to, to, to share your, your problems if there is if there are problems uh, within within your head and your brain I guess using, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to, to focus on cycling, but it, it can be a bit of a metaphor for physical and mental well-being. Um, around every Grand Tour, for example, there's a support network of domestiques, team directors, physiotherapists, and it shows the value of having a support network around you. How important is it on an everyday level for battlers like yourself and I, um, just in society in general, to ensure that we, we have that support network around us or perhaps we make it known to, to our family and friends that we're there as a support network to them. That's very important. I mean, you've got to lean on your friends. Cycling does it. Like I said before, I talk to as many people as I possibly can uh, when we stop and socialise and have a coffee. And uh, we talk about many different topics, but uh, we do talk, at, especially at our age, I'm 59 years of age now, very close to 60 as a matter of fact. In fact, it's my birthday next month. Um, and uh, I talk to as many people as I possibly can uh, from my age group. And uh, uh, even though you might think that life is rosy, and it is, uh, there are issues, uh, private issues, that um, you, you probably can't talk about uh, to your nearest person. But if you talk to them, talk to people outside your close circle of family members and, you, and talk to your closest mates, then maybe... Uh, uh, these issues can be resolved. I don't want to go specifically into what I'm talking about, but um, you know, you've got to have your support there. You've got to have your mates with you uh, and talk, talk about the issues that might, you might be struggling with. Uh, if you don't want to hurt yourself. You don't want to do any damage to yourself physically. And if you've got those mates around you, then uh, well, 
you, you, you might save yourself. Now, Michael, um, the last one before we wrap up, I know you've, you've got a very uh, busy day ahead on this, on this Tuesday. Um, the last one's a bit of a tricky one, but if someone close to us decides to, to open up and express how they're feeling, what do you think the most important thing we can do is as a way of supporting them through whatever they're going through? I would comfort them. I would uh, call them, call on them. I would, uh, I would visit them. I would uh, talk to them. I would take them out for dinner and talk to them. I would ride with them if they're cycling. I would do as much as I possibly can to, and I, I have got some friends, as a matter of fact, uh, who have ridden with me in those black dog rides. And uh, there was one specific rider person who uh, has got everything. A great business, wonderful young family. He's a terrific father, but he had demons through his head. And the people around me were telling me, he's very close. And I said, very close to what? And they'd say, you know, very close to uh, doing some damage to himself. That was five years ago. He's still with us, happy as, ever, uh, happy as, uh, as Larry. He, he's living life to the fullest. Those demons have gone. Why? Because we've supported him. We've reached out to him. We've looked after him and we've loved him as well. Um, that's what you need. They're the key ingredients. And if you can uh, see anyone that might be having some struggles, that's what you've got to do. Just be by their side. That's what they need. Just being there, being present, being available yeah. and being supportive. Exactly right. I think that's the uh, the perfect note to finish on. Michael, thank you so much for giving up a part of your Tuesday morning. I genuinely do appreciate it. And I just want to thank you for being so open and honest about it is a very touchy subject, but as a prominent figure in the media and someone that a lot of people around the country look up to, I'm sure this will resonate with a number of people. So, so a massive thank you. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure, Matthew. It's a very important topic. Uh, uh, mental health is a problem. Um, look, and apart from Black Dog Institute, I'm also involved with an organization called Mental Health Foundation. And I encourage anyone who might be watching this to take part in a six minute challenge. Go to the website, sixminutechallenge.org, six, number six, minutechallenge.org. And what it is, what six minutes represents is every six minutes, one Australian attempts to take his or her life that's a, an incredible number, an incredible statistic. And what we're doing through the month of uh, October uh, is for six minutes uh, every day, we are either cycling or pretending to cycle by uh, laying on our backs and uh, rotating our feet for six minutes. It's not much and you can raise funds. It's, it's all on that website, six minute challenge. I'm involved. Uh, I hope to raise a lot of funds as well. That's my latest uh, uh, venture with mental health. Get in, get on board. It's, it's great to help those uh, who, who are struggling out there. And I'm doing my bit with Black Dog Institute and the Mental Health Foundation. Perfect, Mike. I will, um, I'll leave a note to that in the show notes. And yeah, hopefully we can get as many people around it as possible. Good on you, Matthew. Thank you very much. Thanks, Michael.